Thank you, Don. Uh, last week, uh, we left off in our story on David in a difficult place. David was trying to hide from his sin. Now, as we dive into today's sermon, we're going to discover that God is not going to leave him in that place. God has a plan to bring to surface what David has desperately been trying to hide. And, and when God does this, it's not a pleasant thing. But at the same time, it is a redemptive process that God is doing in David's life. God is not just out to get David, to pay him back for the evil that he did. He is interested in getting David's heart back. Let me invite you to open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, before we dive into this text today, it seems appropriate that if you weren't here last week, for me just to recap just a little bit about what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 11. The story is like a Hollywood production. You have all the elements, right? Power, sex, murder, adultery. It begins with David as king. Now, we've been talking about David for many weeks now. We know that he transitioned from a shepherd boy to one of the most powerful kings in all of the world. One of the coolest things about the story is that David often trusts God in difficult situations. In fact, his life is on the line several times as King Saul pursues him. And by the time we get to this story, David is king. David is comfortably in power. That's a problem, right? He's comfortable. David's men go off to war, but David remains in the palace. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, in the spring, the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men, the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Key word there, but, right? But we have a recipe for trouble here. David is not doing what he should be doing. Stories described in detail. David gets up one night, walks around the roof of a palace, sees a woman bathing on another roof. We're told that the woman is very beautiful. Remember, David is king. He has power. And he uses his power to get what he wants. Now, without going into too much detail, the short of it is that he sleeps with Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. Even at this point, David could have fessed up, but he doesn't. He tries to cover up. He makes matters worse, and this is what we talked about last week. He arranges for her husband to come home. Her husband, this guy named Uriah, is honorable, and he refuses to go in to be with his wife. David's plan did not work, so David resorts to plan B. He arranges for Uriah to be placed on the front lines of battle. Uriah is killed. David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. End of story, right? No big deal, right? Now, this is where it gets interesting. We know that David has a close relationship with God. We know that David is described as a man after God's own heart. And God has a way of dealing with those he loves. He doesn't let them remain in their sin. He doesn't wink at their indiscretions. So God sends this guy named Nathan to speak with David, to confront him. Now, you've got to remember that David has the power to execute him if he doesn't like what he has to say, right? So Nathan is being very brave. He shows tremendous courage by coming to David. But let's read this part of the story. This is 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, he's going to tell him a story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. 
The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come home to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now, I love how Nathan approaches David, don't you? He doesn't just go in there and say, David, you got a problem. He tells him a story. And David thinks that he is being called to judge this particular situation. He has no idea that the story is about him. Look at what he says in verse 5. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Now I would bet at this point Nathan's heart is beating pretty hard inside of his chest, right? Because he knows what he has to say next. Look at what he says in verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now we'll not read all of Nathan's words. In short, Nathan describes the judgment that will come on David because of his sin. We read in verse 13, if you'll skip down there with me. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Tremendous courage on Nathan's part. I think just, just kind of landing there for a minute and thinking about Nathan for a minute, that's a whole sermon in and of itself, isn't it? But he has the courage to go to Nathan, to speak to, or to David, to speak truth to David, even though his life is on the line. And David receives the word of the Lord and he repents. I've sinned against the Lord. After Nathan leaves, the baby, the child that was conceived in sin becomes ill. David pleads for God or with God for the baby's life, but in time the child dies. If you're reading the story in 2 Samuel, we kind of have the, the, the details of what happens and how it happens, but we don't get the behind-the-scenes struggles and emotions, the conversations between David and God. But thankfully, we don't just have the historical record in this case. We have David's diary, if you will. The Psalms, it's an intimate record of David's prayer to God. So let me invite you to flip over with me to Psalm chapter 51. We've read it already this morning, but we're going to continue to study it as we look at this story. This psalm has 19 verses in it, and I'm not going to read every verse, but we're going to focus on the first 12 verses. And again, these verses are written particularly in this context, after David is confronted by Nathan. These verses have to do with David's brokenness. If you um, get to, when you get to verse 13, David begins to look forward to see what God is going to do to restore him. And I don't want to minimize the fact that God does forgive us. I don't want to minimize the fact that grace is sufficient to cover every sin. I don't want to minimize God's restoration in our lives. But this morning we're going to focus on this dynamic of repenting and what David does here. We're going to focus on David's response to Nathan's story, this confrontation. Look at how many times the word sin is used in Psalm chapter 51. It's used seven times in just 19 verses. See, David does not excuse his behavior. Now, David could have dismissed his behavior. 
could have blamed it on post-traumatic stress, right, from his ordeal with Saul. He could have blamed it on childhood insufficiency because of his relationship with his brothers. But David is fully aware that his sin is his problem, not somebody else's. You know, we don't talk a lot about sin in our world today. It's kind of become a dirty word. We often minimize failure in our lives, don't we? And I'm sure there are reasons that people gravitate toward sinful behavior. I'm sure there are deficiencies in love. I'm sure there is childhood trauma that contribute to sin in our world today. But we don't hear any of this language in the psalm. Look at what David says here. Wash away, verse 2, all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. In verse 3 we read, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Verses 4 and 5, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Down in verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Let's, let's consider for just a moment David's understanding of sin. You see, the first step in repenting, the first step in, in being, being one with God, being good with God, is to recognize that we are sinners. We have to take responsibility for our wrongs. Benjamin Franklin said this, He that is good for making excuses is seldom good for anything else. Don Wilder puts it this way, Excuses are the nails used to build a house of failure. You see, we have to stop making excuses and take responsibility for our indiscretions. You see, we see a posture in repentance in the story that Don read this morning from Luke chapter 18. It's a story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Jesus describes a tax collector and a Pharisee, two kind of opposite people in his world, right? And he contrasts the posture of the two. Don read in Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He kind of has his nose in the air, doesn't he? I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. He's full of himself. This guy thinks that he has all that he needs to approach God. He struts in proclaiming his good works. In contrast, we have the tax collector. If you lived in the first century, you understood that a tax collector was one of the most dishonorable people of the day. They basically worked for the Roman government, stealing from hardworking citizens. Jesus describes this guy in verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector realizes he doesn't have a leg to stand on before God. He understands that he's in sin. And look at what Jesus says about him, about his posture. Verse 14, Jesus said, I tell you that, the, that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So this is what it looks like. To be truly repentant. This is what it looks like to come to grips with who we are before God. Now back to Psalm chapter 51. David calls on God to have mercy. 
just as the tax collector, he understands that he doesn't deserve to be forgiven. At the same time, he understands that God is the sort of God who has the capacity and the ability to cleanse and forgive. Look at Psalm chapter 51, verse 4. Look how David owns up to his misstep here. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And I don't know about you, when I read the story, I think of David's sin. And first of all, I think of it as against Bathsheba, don't you? I mean, she is um, forced to sleep with a king. Then her husband dies. I mean, it's a tragic story on her part, right? And I think, well, David's sin is against Bathsheba, right? And you might say, well, it's against Uriah, too. I mean, he loses his life in this whole deal. You might say that David's sin is against the child who, innocent, dies. You see, our sins often affect those around us, don't they? But when it comes to repentance, we are only responsible to God for our sin. We're we're clearly standing before God. And that's why David says this, against you, God, have I sinned. David confesses his evil as being primarily against the God who made him. He also confesses his sinfulness as part of his nature. Look what he says in verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in my inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. He understands the gravity of his sin. He fully accepts the reality of his sin and his standing before God. And at the same time, he calls on God to forgive his sin, to cleanse him. Look at a few more verses with me. David describes what it looks like to be forgiven in verse 7. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Now what's hyssop? We don't think of that word too much in our world today, right? It's a plant with hairy leaves and branches. It would often be used in purification ceremonies. It had to do with cleansing Psalm 58, or 51 verse 8 says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Down in verse 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Can you feel David's passion in these words? Can you sense his desire to be restored to God? Have you ever been in a place where you've let God down? Where you felt dirty? Have you ever been in a place when you think that you are beyond God's ability to reach you? I mean, think about what David has done. Adultery, murder, lying. It's pretty bad stuff. Yet he does not think that he is beyond God's reach. The good news today is the same is true for you and me. God can reach to the lowest places. David continues to describe and plead here in verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Psalm chapter 51 is one that's worth bookmarking in your Bible and coming back to. When we sin, when we let God down, it's a prayer that we can pray too, asking God to forgive us, asking God to cleanse us. And even in the most grievous places, the places where you never think a Christian would be, we might find ourselves and we might need to read this psalm. You know, as we reflect on repentance and restoration, 
it's important to note that forgiveness does not always remove the consequences of our sin. And as we close chapter 12 this morning, we find the child that was conceived dying. David and Bathsheba had to face the pain of this situation. And we're told at the same time in verse 24 that Bathsheba gives birth to another son. This is back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. Now, if we know the story, we know where this is going, right? Grace in the midst of pain, in the midst of mistakes, in the midst of sin. Isn't it cool how God actually uses this bloodline? You know, Solomon is an ancestor of Jesus, right? David and Bathsheba are ancestors of Jesus. At the very end of chapter 12, we hear of David then going out to fight in battle. Now, if you read the first words of chapter 11, David was staying at home, right? Everybody else is going out to battle. But by the end of chapter 12, the story comes full circle. David is back to doing what he's supposed to be doing as king. David is restored. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that we have these stories in the Bible. On the one hand, we might be scratching our heads going, how could a man after God's own heart do such a thing, right? And on the other hand, we're reminded that grace does not have limits. There are no sins that grace cannot cover. There are no places that we can go where we are too far from God that we can't come back. Psalm 51 gives us insight into this. Gives us insight into David's heart. So what does it mean for us? First of all, this text gives us a clear picture of what it means to truly repent. It's not about making excuses. It's about taking responsibility. It's about fessing up. Don't be afraid to come to God with your sin. Don't be afraid to confess the horror of your trespasses. Approach God like the tax collector. Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Secondly, Psalm 51 gives us a glimpse of what true restoration looks like. David enters God's presence not as a second-class citizen, but as a full child of God. He sees his restoration as complete. He calls on God to restore the, what? Full joy of his salvation. I'm not sure where you'd find yourself today. Maybe this morning you have never come to God and confessed that you're in need of him. The good news this morning is that God has provided salvation for you and me. You see, the story will continue to play out, right? And the people of God will veer from him and come back to him and veer from him and come back to him over and over again until God finally enters the world himself through the womb of a virgin. He lives his life, calls disciples to himself, and then goes to a cross and gives himself for you and for me so that we could be covered by his blood. So that our sins could be forgiven. And we know the story. He's raised from the dead, brought to life. And you and I can have that sort of life as we put our faith in him. See, we don't have to live in our sin. 
Forgiveness and restoration is what God wants for every single one of us. He went to extreme measures to make this happen. Maybe this morning you've been trying to do things on your own, right? Trying to kind of build your resume for God. Maybe this morning God is getting, trying to get your attention. We read in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Maybe today you'd respond to God in this way. I'm not sure how God might be speaking to you. But let me invite you to respond as we sing together. This next hymn that we're going to sing, hymn number 445. Um, I, I grew up Baptist, and this was uh, kind of a staple hymn, especially when we'd have revivals. We would always sing this hymn. But, but I love the words of this hymn, just as I am. Not just as I want to be, but just as I am. Without one plea, your blood was shed for me. It's a wonderful hymn to, to sing together at the close of our time together. So let's stand and sing hymn number 445.